0: Hi everyone. In this episode, Dietria Egley and I talk about doing a master's in rehabilitation science, the research project that came of that, and working in palliative care and pediatric hospice. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Damien John. This is Massage Therapy Now. I have a guest with me today from Vancouver, Dietria Igley. Hi, Dietria. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Damien. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me to speak. You're Um, welcome. So, yes, I am a registered massage therapist. I've been practicing since 1997 when I graduated from West Coast College of Massage Therapy 22 years ago. Mm I currently practice in Abbotsford, British Columbia, alongside chiropractors and acupuncturists and kinesiologists in a multidisciplinary clinic. And generally, I have a very general and broad focus for my clinical practice. Uh, In the last couple of years, I've also been given an opportunity to teach a few semesters at CDI College in South Surrey. And then from 2002 to 2010, while I was a massage therapist, I was, I also was given an opportunity to work in pediatric bone health research, helping to coordinate research studies um, at UBC. So I completed my bachelor's in health sciences at Thompson Rivers University in 2011. And I took a short break, and then just recently, I completed my Master's in Rehabilitation Sciences at UBC. I walked across the stage in uh, 2018, so that was pretty exciting for me. Congratulations
0: on your graduation. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, so the Master's, we talked about this. This is our second time through the first time our recording didn't uh, take, or on my side, it didn't take. Dietre's was just fine. but we talked a little bit about getting a master's and and I had always been curious about it and never pursued it myself. Uh, and we talked a little bit about how to go about doing that. So could you just uh, expand on the master's piece a little bit, Dietra? how you went through that with UBC and, and what you needed in order to get your master's as far as bachelor's or undergrads go?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I was a little bit unique in that I had some of a bachelor's degree right after Massage Therapy School, before there was a bridging program offered through Thompson Rivers University. But now there is a fantastic bridging opportunity through Thompson Rivers University where they will block transfer a certain number of credits from our Massage Therapy program into their Bachelor's of Health Sciences. So you can complete your Bachelor's degree there. And uh, once you complete a Bachelor's, UBC has an amazing online Master's in Rehabilitation Sciences it's really geared towards practicing clinicians Uh, and so that's what i did that way i didn't ever have to go into the university i was able to work my full-time clinical practice and apply what i was learning to topics that were interesting to me and it was just a really fun way to sort of integrate the learning with the questions that i was most curious about Um, Basically, as long as you have a bachelor's degree, my understanding is you can move towards the master's in rehabilitation sciences. They also require that you have some sort of health, you're in some sort of health field, and they do require proof of that, or they did mm-hmm. when I started. And the the courses are taught by just a range of amazing professionals, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, with incredible clinical backgrounds as well as incredible research experience. So you're given a really nice, broad, inspiring environment to, you know, engage with peers who are also, some of them are in primary care settings. others of us are in uh, private care settings. I, in my classes, we had uh, dietitians, we had chiropractors, athletic therapists, kinesiologists, physios occupational therapist, and it was really fun to engage in all these conversations about what, you know, our perspectives on healthcare from various lenses. So I I can't recommend it enough. It was a wonderful experience for me. It was very accessible. And the program is very, I believe Mm -hmm. it's quite high quality. I learned so many tools and skills that are very relevant and practical. And of course, you know, I learned how to write and better and how to assess evidence. And yeah, it was a, it was a great, it was a great experience for me.
0: The master's program sounds, sounds really accessible, which I think is super important to note, at least for me as a working individual, it'd be hard for me to go back to school, but to have it remotely accessible as well. So you could do it if you were anywhere in BC or or even the world, I guess. Is that is that true?
1: And that's one of the really interesting things about the program. You will have some peers and, and colleagues who are doing it from other countries. And so they are also reflecting a, a different perspective, uh, you know, perhaps from anywhere in the world. We did have some people who were quite far away and, and they were doing great in the program. So it was really fun and um, I really appreciated getting to learn from all the, everybody. Um, your peers as well as your professors.
0: Uh-huh. And then once you've done that, you can move on to a PhD if you so choose. I would guess that would be a, a thing some of you have decided to do or will decide to do eventually.
1: Absolutely. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a big,
0: is the PhD even more intensive or can you do that one remotely?
1: That's a great question. I I have not had a chance to fully explore what the commitment would look like of a phd Uh, you know whether it can be done full-time whether there are some part-time options Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm passionate about research projects in massage therapy i want to see us doing a wide range of different types of research and it's sort of ripe for the picking right now our profession is young in research but we're doing a lot of really cool things Mm -hmm. so I think um, there's lots of different ways to approach that. Whether it through be through a PhD or whether it through be through finding a supervisor and pursuing projects. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly which route I will take, but the PhD is an option, and there probably are various requirements or. Uh, depending on the school, the program, and who your supervisor yeah. would be.
0: Well, let's just take a, a few moments and enjoy finishing the master's, maybe. <laughs>
1: yes, please.
0: <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about your master's a little bit, because the research in it is what stands out, or what we focused on last time, and I think it should be our focus again today. And the baseline of your research was the value of massage therapy and pediatric hospice Um, i've got two questions related to that why choose pediatric hospice would be the first and then the second can you elaborate on how you planned and completed that project because there's there's lots of nuance to working both in pediatrics and in hospice
1: absolutely so i'll start with the planning part of it um when you're doing your master's in rehabilitation sciences through ubc you can choose one of two options you can either do 10 courses or you can do seven courses, and then do a project. And a lot of those courses help prepare you to being ready to do a project, a research project. Once you finish those seven courses, you're assigned a supervisor. So I was assigned Dr. Leslie Bainbridge from the Department of Physical Therapy at UBC. And I know she's been a supervisor for several of us registered massage therapists who are in the program. She guided me through developing a research question. Then we did a literature review and we wrote a proposal on a topic that I was interested in researching. We presented that proposal, we put it through ethics, and then we implemented it, uh, implemented our plan to be able to answer the research question. When I began creating my proposal, there was no research Mm -hmm. on massage therapy in pediatric hospices at all. There was some research into adult hospices, um, but this setting in particular really just didn't have any any evidence to back or support or to speak of why massage therapy might be valued in the setting. Since 2011, however, there has been a weekly supervised massage therapy student practicum at Canuck Place where students, they've been providing approximately 500 treatments each year to the children in care, their families, the Canuck Place staff, and some of Canuck Place, connect Place's volunteers. So this is a gr- this was a great opportunity, a very exciting chance to understand experientially, why they valued having massage therapy in the hospice. Now, To add to that, Canuck Place, it was also an ideal setting. So I got really excited when I realized, okay, it's Canuck Place that also has this practicum because it's a center for research excellence and teaching in pediatric palliative care. So they have a number of accomplished researchers, clinicians, and clinical leaders in the hospice who have affiliations with UBC. So they understand research and they have the capacity to support this kind of project. Um, so we had both an actual practicum where students were getting care and we had a setting where they were able to support research and they knew what it would take in order to be successful. And that was just, that, yeah, that was fantastic for me. I got very lucky there.
0: One of the really interesting pieces of, of what we talked about prior was the fact that Connect Place had such a robust ethics background related to who was on staff and and so as far as doing a research project, it seems like a really great, like you say, a great opportunity to both do really good quality research and be supported in in the research that you did.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So a friend and I have been talking about research. She's been going to school. Her research courses are kind of low grade. How do you as a researcher, in this case, ensure that the research is is quality? Because I don't know much about the process of doing research. I'm a total neophyte when it comes to that. What makes research quality research as far as being a person who's within a research project? And and how can you ensure that?
1: That's a good question. I'm, so I'm hearing a few interesting things in there. The first one is the, the support, the kind of support that you have in doing the research. So one thing to recognize is that we all have to start somewhere. So really on that trajectory of novicehood to experienced researcher, it is a very big, steep learning curve. And so I think having the, the grace with oneself to allow for a fairly steep learning curve. It's not always intuitive. There's a lot to good quality research. And, you know, I remember asking one of my professors at UBC, she was developing a project to answer a question. And I asked her, so is it get, does it get easier? And she said, not necessarily. There's a lot of research. There's a lot of background review. There's a lot of rationalizing your methodology and making sure your research question and your method Um, and your methodology all makes sense and lines up to create the most accurate and best reflection of the answer to your question. And then also there's things like member checking and triangulation and saturation. And these are all tools that try to create a really robust, trustworthy paper or trustworthy outcomes and so it's uh you know it is definitely it takes a lot of preparation and i think that's one of the things that can be surprising you know a research project can take years to from planning through to publication because it's not uh you know it's not necessarily linear there's lots of potentially bumps along the way and there's lots of learning along the way and and sometimes readjusting or adapting to what you're learning through the process so that you can continuously strengthen um, what you're doing. So my project was qualitative. And so you want to make sure that with my project, I used something called descriptive phenomenology for a very specific reason.
0: Okay, a quick definition of descriptive phenomenology. It was developed by American psychologist, Emidio Giorgi, According to Wikipedia, it is a psychological perspective where researchers are encouraged to bracket their own assumptions pertaining to the phenomenon in question by refraining from positing a static sense of objective reality for oneself and the participants whose experiences are being studied. This allows the researchers to attend to the descriptions of the participants without forcing the meaning of the descriptive units into predefined categories. You're welcome.
1: I had to consider my frame of reference to the topic. I am an outsider to Connect Place. I have never had a child. I, I've never had a child with a, a, a palliative condition. I've never had a child myself. So I have very little insider knowledge of what pediatric palliative care looks mm-hmm. like, nor am I a clinician, uh, like a, a nurse or a physician who works in these environments. So I chose to do descriptive phenomenology in recognition of my lack of knowledge. Um, And then also when you consider that I have Tannis Miller, she's the director of program development and administration at Connect Place. And then I had Dr. Potts, also a UBC um, professor and a director of research at Connect Place. Both of them vetted my information. They looked at my outcomes. They were there at all of my proposal presentations, helping to strengthen it and add to the credibility of the research project. So part of the strength, I think, in this project was I had so many fantastic, talented partners. I also have a research background. I spent eight years at UBC getting to observe amazing people do incredible research. So that allowed me to be a little bit of a at a, diff, a little bit of a different place perhaps on the learning curve mm-hmm. as well and and then a great research question is important something that's answerable right. you know and and something that you'll actually be able to successfully implement it's it's recruitment can be really challenging being successful in all of these phases along the way are the are, is the only way you're going to get to your final outcome. so there's a lot of planning in a research project and uh, there's a lot of thought that goes into what you read in a 20 page paper uh-huh. in a journal so uh, it's really a it's it's an incredible process and UBC has uh the ethics review board they have a very robust system they do have multiple opportunities where other people are reading your project you're presenting to them they're offering you feedback they're offering ways for you to be successful um, in your research project so that you can get it done they do expect you know a, a degree of independence for sure um, and at the same time, they offer a lot of support. So it's a really neat balance. Yeah,
0: I really appreciate the insight because I've like I say, I've literally no experience doing research except for getting reading books for papers in university and such, but nothing of this nature. And so as you're talking about it, I start to sweat a little bit <laughs> because it sound it sounds so involved and and really to do it well, it's a bit of an art as well as a science. So yeah, that context is, is really useful to somebody like me because when I read a research paper, there's often a lot of yawning and trying not to fall asleep because it's so complex in terms of how it's written, often the ones that I've read anyways. And so to get a bit of the background and appreciate all the work that goes into these things is makes me appreciate the process a lot more. And that's not to say that I haven't read some research papers and thoroughly enjoyed them, but many of them have been quite ponderous to to get through. Um, so we're speaking about Connect Place and your research project as it relates to Connect Place. Um, can you speak to the research and its outcomes and also a little bit about what Canuck Place is? Because we haven't really expanded on that too much. We know it's pediatric hospice. Uh, there's two of them in the lower mainland and you having done your research there know a little more about the place than I do. So.
1: Absolutely. So I'll start with, very generally, what what is a hospice? So the goal of hospice is to keep individuals comfortable and improve their quality of life. It can be delivered in a range of settings. It can be done in home and nursing homes and long-term care facilities or hospitals. And they promote high-quality, holistic care. It's generally interdisciplinary, it's compassionate, it's accessible client-centered. And the goal is generally ensuring the best possible quality of life for those who are dying and their families. That came from the BC Ministry of Health. And another comment here from the BC Ministry of Health is that hospices aims center on alleviating suffering. So the physical, emotional, spiritual, and psychosocial suffering rather than curing so the vast majority of hospices that most people are aware of would be adult oriented hospices connect place uh, is very unique because it is it is bc's pediatric hospice and they serve children from birth through to 19 years of age like you said there are two locations Their first hospice opened in 1995, and it's in the Shaughnessy area of Vancouver. And I don't know if you've ever had a chance to see it, but it is a stunning building. The gardens are beautiful. Everything in the hospice is designed to make a, a beautiful, loving, caring, kind space to really support and embrace families um, who are needing pediatric palliative care services. That hospice has nine patient beds and four family suites. And it was North America's first freestanding children's hospice. So they have a, an incredible history of being uh, the first children's hospice in North America. Since then, Abbotsford here has opened David Lead House which is a, an affiliate or is a branch of the Canuck Place in Vancouver. And they they opened in January of 2014, and they currently have four patient beds and four family suites. So one of the things that was said to me, and this is a very oversimplified way to understand the conditions in pediatric palliative care, but it, it helped me to sort of see the scope and range of, The conditions that children may have. So there are generally two types of palliative conditions affecting children. There are those that they could be born with. And so with those conditions, sometimes there are more mobility challenges or cognitive challenges. And the children may be nonverbal. And there are those who are also first diagnosed later in childhood or adolescence. So an example of that might be cancer. So there's a range of conditions that are seen in a pediatric hospice. And I think that, I guess, surprised me. I had always thought maybe more cancer-oriented, but it, it is a much broader range. In pediatric palliative care, the, the congenital conditions are a big portion of the healthcare needs that they meet. Also, the, the pediatric hospice is quite unique because They're supporting children from zero to 19 years of age. So these children are rapidly changing, maturing, and developing in ways that patients aren't in adult hospices. It
0: makes it really complex.
1: It makes it incredibly complex. These children also often have multiple diagnoses. Their symptoms and the management of their symptoms is therefore also unique Mm -hmm. and A lot of these children will access palliative services for a lot longer of a period of time than adults do. So 10 years, some children may be accessing Canuck Place Children's Hospice for 10 years.
0: I had a question about that, Uh, Titia. Do they cycle in and out then as they age? They're not in Canuck Place or living in Canuck Place. They're utilizing it as a service off
1: and on. Uh, Absolutely. That's a great question. So Canuck Place offers a really comprehensive form of care to these children and their families. And so they deliver something called medical respite. So for each of these families, they could get up to 20 nights of respite a year at Canuck Place. So what this means is they can go in and stay at the hospice. The family can stay in the family suite. The child can stay in one of Canuck Place's um, hospice rooms or the whole family can stay in the room together it's all up to the family it's what's most meaningful and important to them and the child will have proper supportive talented medical care from the Canuck place staff and the family will be supported with meals and rest um, one of the things uh, we had mentioned or talked about last time are the care needs of these children is, incre- is incredible. So parents of children with complex palliative conditions, there was a research study in 2018 led by Lazarin, where they found that parents of children with complex palliative conditions can spend close to nine hours a day, on average, managing the healthcare needs of their children. So if you can imagine, uh, one of the goals of Connect Place is to provide caregivers with an opportunity mm-hmm. to rest so that they can be refreshed, supported, and they can feel like they are also uh, cared for and, and get opportunities to do different things which are hard to access while also providing full-time care right. to their child. So the respite offers an opportunity to either just come in and rest and enjoy the hospice environment. Or sometimes parents might have an opportunity to go on vacation with, uh, you know, their their other children or to go and do something uh, different that, you know, they wouldn't be able to do while also needing to provide the medical support that their child Mm -hmm. needs. And for
0: those of us who have helped individuals who have high care needs, the idea of respite and having a bit of time to rest and recover is a beautiful notion. It's very difficult to find that time and space if you're, like you say, in that study, full-time taking care of a human.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Um, Another thing they offer is pain and symptom management. So if a child's pain and symptoms are not currently being managed in an ideal way, in order to make them comfortable, the children can come back to Canuck Place and there is a medical team there who, again, they're highly specialized. This is what they do. They are, they are incredibly experienced in pediatric palliative care and they will do all the things they need to do to try and manage and get the symptoms back to a place where, where the child is comfortable again. So that is, again, part of the in-house uh, service that they offer in addition to that they have a huge an extensive network of counseling so this is counseling for you know the families as they get a diagnosis through to caring for their children through to end of life care all the way through to bereavement support there is there are counseling there's spiritual counseling there is uh, support for everyone who might need it uh, from the, the counseling team.
0: Sounds, sounds amazing. So let's bounce to the research component, because now you're coming in to do some research in an environment where there's lots going on. There's an existing massage therapy component to it given by the students of WCCMT for the past 11 years. So robust in and of itself, I think in terms of working out some of the, the kinks along the way I'm, I'm sure it's running as a finely oiled machine at this point point. and so y- you come in with your research question and project after much work and what happened?
1: So I came in and I asked a series of questions and I interviewed six clinicians at Canuck Place to find out their views and their perspectives on massage therapy, why they valued having it in the hospice, if there were any barriers or any concerns that they had. And overwhelmingly, their response was incredibly positive. Um, And so we found that there were three primary grouped outcomes. One was they valued massage therapy as a practical support. That they valued massage therapy for physical support and that they valued massage therapy in the hospice for as a means of psychosocial support. So, when I say a practical support, all the clinicians found joy. They all expressed gratitude and joy in seeing children, families, and staff and colleagues enjoy and benefit from a massage. They felt that having massage therapy in the hospice, it was a gift um, to both receive and to be able to offer the massages um, to anybody who might need them or want them while they were in the hospice. From a financial and practical accessibility standpoint, uh, clinicians valued having massage therapy in the hospice for creating access to the service without the financial and practical barriers that most children and their families face in their communities. So again, we talked about the nine hours a day of care needs. Where is their time for families to go and receive something like a massage? In addition to that, there was a study led by Bune in 2013 and her colleagues or their colleagues out of Toronto where 62% of palliative families in Toronto Uh, live in high poverty neighborhoods. So, you know, financially, massage therapy for a lot of these families is likely relatively inaccessible without having the support of a hospice to deliver that care or having a practicum in place to get that care delivered Mm -hmm. to families.
0: Which hits on a really important notion when it comes to massage therapy, because a lot of it is only accessible by people with Money and so, if hospice care has a high percentage of people with low income, then having access to what's inaccessible, like massage therapy, usually is quite a beautiful thing. And and there's so many other aspects to connect place from the sounds of it, where they're providing really really high quality care. Massage therapy being one one piece of that, but I, that really struck me last time when we talked of it too, where the accessibility of something that was inaccessible, like massage therapy, and something so, in my opinion, so easily attainable, touching human beings in a kind, consensual fashion is essentially what we do as massage therapists with a few little (laughs) twists and tricks and things. But um, to have that be there for people really shone through in terms of what this pediatric hospice is doing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I I mean, touch is touch is very valuable to a lot of people. And, you know, of course, when we're talking about anything with regards to massage, we're we're talking about people who value touch, you know, there may be some people who don't value touch. And that's the wonderful thing, you know, people Mm -hmm. can consent to and ask for and receive massage, you know, if they value it. And, you know, one of the things you and I had talked about before, too, is that, you know, these nurses, these clinicians, they're incredibly kind. They provide so much hands-on direct care to these families and to these children. And, you know, it isn't uncommon for them to comfort a child by massaging their back or massaging their leg or, you know, um, helping with their physical therapy exercises and their mobility exercises that they need to do. But that doesn't necessarily mean that parents are receiving touch mm-hmm. um, and or that their siblings are receiving touch. So understanding that there's different touch needs for, you know, various individuals who might be in the hospice and understanding that the hospice does make everybody's needs a priority. The child in care, their siblings, their family, and they do try and support each other to create the most caring and you know, loving, lovely environment possible. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so yeah, I interrupted yeah. you there a little bit just to, to yeah. hit on that note, but that one is, uh, every time I hear it, it's a touching space for me. So, and and that's not meant as a pun.
1: Well, and then the third practical reason they valued having massage therapy in the hospice was self-care. You know, they appreciated or clinicians appreciated the reinforcement of an organizational belief that self-care is important offering massage therapy to staff at Canuck Place. was valued as a tangible support in a workplace that requires a pretty significant physical, emotional, and intellectual investment. And it's one tool that can support families in their journey of caring for their child or in their transition into bereavement support. So there is a pretty significant physical demand placed on All caregivers. The second part was physical support. So clinicians appreciated that massage therapy offered injury support and prevention, perhaps for the clinicians in the hospice as well as the parents. So the idea that there is a significant and sheer volume of physical demand required as a part of caregiving. So there's lifting, bathing, transferring, Mm -hmm. all of which requires people's physical output. So providing opportunities to rest and recover are rare for families who may spend weeks living in hospitals. Having massage therapy at the hospice provided staff and families with an opportunity to care for their physical needs and help with injuries, muscle stiffness, and pain um, through massage therapy. The other thing clinicians recognized is that massage therapy may help support children's Symptoms. So, massage therapy was thought to potentially support children's mobility, muscle stiffness, contractures, discomfort, sleep, digestion, and pain, all of those things being concerns in a hospice. We had five interesting psychosocial outcomes from the research, and these were the ones that I thought were, you know, probably the most interesting or most exciting. I think the other ones we've maybe heard of before, but um, the psychosocial support ones and having those Mm -hmm. described was, was really particularly interesting to me as a clinician to contemplate. One that came out was that clinicians felt massage was dignifying. So by that, they meant that delivering massage therapy in the hospice is a message or provided a message that patients are more than their illness and that they matter. Clinicians expressed that opportunities for families and staff to have massage was viewed as a source of acknowledgement. It honored them, it gave them permission to ask for support and reflected a message that they were valued, cared for and appreciated. Massage was seen as humanizing um, because it transcended individuals' experiences their expectations and their roles as a patient, a nurse or a caregiver and gave them a moment to just be and that they mattered. So um, we had talked about how just from a sheer volume perspective, in the last year of a child's life, um, there was research by Chavoshi, Miller and Seaton in 2013 that uh, Mm -hmm. spoke about how in the last year of a child's life, They spend an average of 48 days in the hospital and require approximately 222 medical services. That is a significant volume of uh, medical care, right? And this may involve, you know, any number of uh, needles or uncomfortable procedures. And even though all of these practitioners and clinicians are incredibly gentle and very kind they recognize themselves that massage therapy was provided just a really, a a totally different type of touch than medical touch. And that that in itself was very dignified. A needle
0: is a needle and intentional touch is intentional touch. And as much care as you put into a needle, you, if you're scared of them or if you have lots of them, they're still not going to be very comfortable. I, I love this, this portion of the, psychosocial that your project started to uncover the idea that massage is dignifying and humanizing and a portion of that being the fact that it is intentionally brought forward as this kind touch space. I I think that's beautiful.
1: Absolutely. Very well, very well summarized Mm -hmm. too. So another psychosocial support that clinicians valued massage therapy for was interconnection. So Clinicians spoke about isolating factors associated with being a palliative child or a caregiver of a palliative child that could make physical and social connection of receiving massage an appreciated form of care. So many of the children with congenital palliative conditions are nonverbal. So touch is thought to perhaps be an important means of communicating for some of these children. Massage was also appreciated for being a form of connections that did not require words. Sometimes words are too much. Sometimes people would rather sit in silence. From a therapeutic relationship standpoint, of course, enjoying the presence of a kind, respectful and attentive caregiver who is anonymous was thought to be a connection that both children and families might appreciate. And then for children with a diagnosis of cancer in their teenage years, one of the interesting things clinicians talked about was their touch needs might change in adolescence as they begin to individuate and long for physical touch from someone other than their parents. So there was, Talk of how the massage practicum may provide an opportunity to ask for consent to and engage in touch in a way that's kind, compassionate, and respected these boundaries, the boundaries of these adolescents, um, but still gave them an opportunity to experience touch from somebody other than parents Mm -hmm. if they wanted it. Sure. Another um, psychosocial. Outcome that was appreciated was, or that clinicians spoke of, was intraconnection. So, massage, clinicians describe massage as a meditation or an opportunity to go inward and connect with one's physical and emotional self. They talked about massage providing an opportunity to be more present, to defragment, and, or to become more self-aware. They wondered if massage might play a role in self-acceptance or integration particularly when a disease and its symptoms are particularly distressing and affect one's sense of self. Um, Some of these treatments may very significantly alter one's physical health. So massage was thought to provide a moment for clinicians to experience their body, connect inward and cope in a way that was meaningful to them. So the
0: interconnection piece would then be individuals connecting more to what's going on internally?
1: absolutely absolutely well said yes the fourth psychosocial variable that came out of this study was providing rest and relaxation so the clinicians believed massage created an opportunity for rest a physical break a moment of relaxation for those who were in the house uh, clinicians hoped that these moments would support caregivers to be better caregivers to refresh them to help with anxiety or even provide moments where they may worry just a little bit less. And the last psychosocial variable they talk about was massage being a form of nurturing or comforting. So it is seen as a service that is about comforting, nurturing, nurturing and caring for people in the hospice. Clinicians valued massage as a means to acknowledge one's own needs, to gift the service to others and to support others in receiving of the service clinicians actually talked about how they appreciated being able to witness others embody a calmer, more peaceful and rested state. And they talked about how they appreciated massage as time for someone to be handled in a way that is kind and compassionate. They likened massage to a hug, a hand on one's back, a gentle nonverbal acknowledgement. And they did talk about how clinicians were comforted by seeing colleagues, children and families benefit from massage and hope that parents were also comforted by being able to witness their children being treated special.
0: One of the beautiful things that stands out to me with your study is I remember doing hospice work in school and that was kind of the only time I did it as an outreach, not because I was avoiding it, but it was my only opportunity to do it. and. I remember uh, feeling somewhat separate from the therapy I was providing at that point, mostly because I didn't understand what was going on. And and as I'm listening to you talk about the clinicians hitting on these factors, uh, these psychosocial and physical and practical support factors, it gives a lot of insight into the value of the work from the perspective of people who are there constantly. And it sounds profound in, in a lot of ways, the whole idea of it being dignifying and the interconnection pieces and the intraconnection pieces and the rest and relaxation, like all of it is really useful to hear as a, as a person who's practiced massage therapy in my life to both bolster why you would do such work, but also inspire one to do more of that work. It, it gives context.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I was impressed by in being at the hospice is the, the students, our, our practicum students who went to do these clinical placements, our clinical leader, supervisor who was supervising these students, the school as a whole um, have done an incredible job being incredibly professional and in delivering a great service that is highly valued the clinicians spoke to this. They really mm-hmm. appreciated the professionalism and the willingness of massage therapists to do this. And for our students, of course, this is an invaluable opportunity. Where else are we going to get an opportunity to experience such a unique setting? Um, to, yeah, and to experience such a range of healthcare needs, all the way from children and care to their families, as well as you know the whole interdisciplinary care element mm-hmm. of hospice hospice has a unique culture in and of itself amongst the medical community and massage therapy is very it, it's a massage therapy isn't a big bridge gap to bridge between hospice right. and massage therapy so it was a i, I was really proud as a massage therapist to hear of the great job that these students are doing and of course we're incredibly fortunate to have connect place willing to support this practicum um willing to you know encourage these services to families and and supporting this with the resources in order to allow students to learn in such a unique setting Mm -hmm. also one of the things though i wanted to um say about connect place in general though is it really is it is a wonderful place like they, they do a lot to help empower families and empower children and help them live their best possible life. Um, and they are, they do a, an incredible job offering all kinds of wonderful services to, you know, children and families in order to provide them opportunities that are meaningful to them. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Well, even having a big, beautiful garden. Yeah. A garden. I'm a gardener. So I, I when I hear that a place that provides care, has all of these growing things it has a lot of meaning to me because I love being in places where where plants are growing and animals are and um, I find a lot of peace there so
1: well you know I think one of the things that's interesting about a project like this you know when I first said well what is the value of massage therapy in a hospice some people would maybe say well isn't that obvious but it's, it's not as easy to find the words to articulate what that is and what that means. So I think for massage therapy, we need more research. And this was just, there was a big gap in the literature. There was an opportunity to fill the gap. Having research in a profession is incredibly important. We having an opportunity to understand how, our, how massage therapy is perceived by other healthcare professions having opportunities to understand how massage therapy is perceived by children Mm -hmm. is important. Understanding how it's perceived by parents is important. Understanding uh, all of these different perspectives allows us to understand what outcomes matter even to children, families, clinicians Mm -hmm. in various settings. So it helps inform future research and it helps to create a body of knowledge about what massage therapy is and, and why it might be important and what it might be, might provide to children and families. You know, one of the things that one of the clinicians said to me that really stuck with, stuck with me was families in a place like Canut Place, where their children have incredible medical needs and, and they need an evidence-based discussion about what massage therapy brings to their child in order to properly weigh the risks and benefits of allowing their child to have massage, right. you know. And primary care practitioners need to also have the knowledge in order to be able to convey these risks and benefits when speaking to families. Mm. It's something that they value. And, you know, I, I made, it made me think um, we need more research as to the benefits of massage therapy for children, one great study by Dr. Colette uh, out of UBC showed that massage therapy helped with autonomic functioning and heart rate variability in children in acute pediatric care settings. These things are, you know, this these outcomes, this is important for primary care settings and physicians and families in making decisions about what sort of care they want their children to have access to.
0: It seems to me that it provides almost like a de-stressing component when we know more about what it does so that when you're talking to people who are in these high stress scenarios, you can provide them with this information and it allows the synthesis to be really soft. Being a person who is in in an environment that's highly medicalized and often and you're getting lots of data from all sorts of different places, if you can speak to it in a way that, yes, we've done the research and we've got this information for you, it it would help.
1: Yes. Well, and also for me as a clinician, if I'm approaching a care environment like hospice, to realize that what we're doing is we're providing kind, caring, compassionate touch we don't have to you know to understand this interesting intersection between people having being more relaxed people feeling more empowered people having choice people feeling connected um and and how that may support symptoms that's that's an interesting thing to me as well you know um there's there seems to be an intersection between you know, psychosocially perhaps feeling more supported and symptom management. Mm-hmm. I would hypothesize, it, it right. seems to make sense to me. And so I, as a clinician now, I I hold those principles in high regard at the front of my head when I'm approaching anybody who might be in a setting like this, or in a, you know, am I, am I approaching this person with dignity? Right am i realizing the importance of the therapeutic interaction am i realizing the importance that this might have for that person to have quiet
0: i want to highlight a few things here Dietria hits on something that is really key the fact manual therapy patients have different needs this is super important and providing for those needs and being cognizant or even field aware as to what is going on in their day-to-day lives this is something i learned slowly over time as a massage therapist and I just think it needs reinforcing it does for me anyways and as she puts it so beautifully am i approaching this person with dignity am i realizing the importance of the therapeutic interaction and how do we support people in a way that is most meaningful to them how do we do that
1: or to just even connect within themselves you know so uh i think i think of all of those things a little bit differently now and and you know, how do we support people in a way that's most meaningful to them? I think that's always uh, an important question as massage therapists. And I think it varies from person to person and population to population. But we need to, if we can have an opportunity to to explore that with each population, we empower them, we give them a voice. um, And it gives us a frame of reference that I think is valuable.
0: Yeah, it really speaks to the psychosocial component of the work that massage therapists do. So I'm curious about one last thing when you decide to do more research, as it sounds like you're going to, are you going to continue down this path or are you sparked in different directions?
1: I'd say I have a broad interest in all massage therapy research. Mm -hmm. Um, It was such a privilege and an honor to get to have the support and the knowledge and wisdom and experience of you know, researchers and clinicians at Canuck Place and I'm open to whatever opportunities come up. I'm, I'm excited about any massage (laughs) therapy research, whether it be qualitative or quantitative Uh or longitudinal or cross-sectional. It's all very interesting to me.
0: You're basically a big research nerd.
1: I'm a research nerd and I love the idea of being challenged in, exploring all these different methods and methodologies and in asking meaningful questions that, um, are, you know, answerable based on some of the amazing things that are happening already, even in Uh uh, amongst our profession here in BC. So yeah, I, I'm not sure if I'll, it'll be a PhD or if it will be pursuing projects perhaps with other massage therapists or other clinical instructors, Um, looking for supervisors at UBC and and trying to do just more of a project focus so that I can continue my clinical practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of questions there that I need to uh, think of and figure out what works best. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Here I want to ensure I say thank you to Dietria for all of her hard work and sharing this information with us. The amount of work put into a research project like this is not lost on me. Also, massage therapists, those of us who help people through kind, considerate, consensual touch, you are doing amazing work. Don't ever forget that. And thank you so much to Canuck Place for allowing us to share the study so broadly. The details of the study are really, really beautiful and important to those who work in the field, and I think a really necessary share. But both Dietria and I wanted to honor the sacred space that a hospice holds for us in society. And we really hope to have
1: done that. Thank you so much for having me. I I wanted to say a few thanks before I uh, mm-hmm. step away here. I really want to make sure, I want to honor the children and families who have accessed and who are accessing pediatric palliative care services. Um, I want to honor Canuck Place and the staff and their volunteers for the incredible work they do every day. It was such a privilege for me to have been so generously supported by my supervisor, Dr. Leslie Bainbridge at UBC and by Dr. Potts and Tannis Miller at Canuck Place. I couldn't have done it without all all of them. I need to thank the Canuck Place staff for welcoming me in the hospice and for being so generous with their time and knowledge, for scheduling the interview rooms with me and for their hospitality. It gave me great pride, as I said, as an RMT, to hear about how well-respected our students and practicum supervisor were in the way they provided care and engaged everybody at Canuck Place. And I have to thank the Registered Massage Therapists Association of BC and all of its membership for providing me a scholarship that helped support me through this process. And again, thank you to you for giving me an opportunity to share this experience with people.
0: Yeah, my great pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Massage Therapy Now in conjunction with the RMTBC. They support both research and podcasts, so a big kudos to them. And thanks again, Dietria. Have a very nice day, and we'll talk again soon.
1: Thank you so much, Damien.